Chapter Fifteen of Zanoni by Edward Bulwer Lytton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. Be behind what there may, I raise the veil. As a victim, I go to the altar. It was about a month after the date of Zanoni's departure and Glyndon's introduction to Menjor, when two Englishmen were walking arm in arm through Toledo. I tell you said one, who spoke warmly, that if you have a particle of common sense left in you, you will accompany me to England. This Mejnour is an impostor more dangerous, because more in earnest, than Zanoni. After all, what do his promises amount to? You allow that nothing can be more equivocal. You say that he has left Naples, that he has selected a retreat more congenial than the crowded thoroughfares of men to the studies in which he is to initiate you and this retreat is among the haunts of the fiercest bandits of italy haunts which justice itself dares not penetrate fitting hermitage for a stage i tremble for you what if this stranger of whom nothing is known be leagued with the robbers and these lures for your credulity bait but the traps for your property perhaps your life you might come off cheaply by a ransom of half your fortune you smile indignantly well, put common sense out of the question. Take your own view of the matter. You are to undergo an ordeal which Menjnor himself does not profess to describe as very tempting one. It may, or it may not, succeed. If it does not, you are menaced with the darkest evils. And if it does, you cannot be better off than the dull, joyless mystic whom you have taken for a master. Away with this folly. Enjoy youth while it is left to you. Return with me to England." forget these dreams enter your proper career form affections more respectable than those which lured you a while to an italian adventuress attend to your fortune make money and become happy and distinguished man this is the advice of sober friendship yet the promises i hold out to you are fairer than those of mejnor mervali said glyndon doggedly i cannot if i would yield to your wishes a power that is above me urges me on I cannot resist its influence. I will proceed to the last in the strange career I have commenced. Think of me no more. Follow yourself the advice you give to me, and be happy. This is madness, said Mervali. Your health is already failing. You are so changed I could scarcely know you. Come. I have already had your name entered in my passport. In another hour I shall be gone, and you, boy that you are, will be left without a friend to the deceits of your own fancy, and the machinations of this relentless mountebank. Enough, said Glyndon coldly. You cease to be an effective counsellor when you suffer your prejudice to be thus evident. I have already had ample proof, added the Englishman, and his pale cheek grew more pale, of the power of this man, if man he be, which I sometimes doubt. And come life, come death, I will not shrink from the paths that allure me. Farewell, Mervali if we never meet again if you hear amidst our old and cheerful haunts that clarence glyndon sleeps the last sleep by the shores of naples or amidst yon distant hills say to the friends of our youth he died worthily as thousands of martyred students have died before him in the pursuit of knowledge he wrung mervali's hand as he spoke darted from his side and disappeared amidst the crowd by the corner of the toledo he was arrested by nico ah glyndon i have not seen you this month where have you hid yourself have you been absorbed in your studies 
Yes. I am about to leave Naples for Paris. Will you accompany me? Talent of all order is eagerly sought for there, and will be sure to rise. Thank you. I have other schemes for the present. So laconic! What ails you? Do you grieve for the loss of the Pisani? Take example by me. I have already consoled myself with Bianca Sacchini, a handsome woman, enlightened, no prejudices. A valuable creature I shall find her, no doubt. But as for this Zanoni— What of him? If I ever paint an allegorical subject, I will take his likeness as Satan. A true painter's revenge, eh? And the way of the world, too. When we can do nothing else against a man whom we hate, we can at least paint his effigies as the devil's. Seriously, though, I abhor that man. Wherefore? Wherefore? Has he not carried off the wife and the dowry I had marked for myself? Yet after all, added Nico musingly, had he served instead of injured me, I should have hated him all the same. His very form and his very face made me at once envy and detest him. I felt there is something apathetic in our natures. I feel, too, that we shall meet again, when Jean Nicot's hate may be less impotent. We, too, cher confrère, we, too, may meet again. Vive la République! I to my new world! And I to mine. Farewell! That day Mervali left Naples. The next morning Glyndon also quitted the city of delight alone, and on horseback. He bent his way into those picturesque but dangerous parts of the country which at that time were infested with banditti, and which few travellers dared to pass, even in broad daylight, without a strong escort. A road more lonely cannot well be conceived than that on which the hoofs of his steed, striking upon the fragments of rock that encumbered the neglected way, woke a dull and melancholy echo. Large tracts of wasteland, varied by the rank and profuse foliage of the south, lay before him. Occasionally, a wild goat peeped down from some rocky crag, or the discordant cry of a bird of prey, startled in its sombre haunt, was heard above the hills. These were the only signs of life. Not a human being was met, not a hut was visible. Wrapped in his own ardent and solemn thoughts, the young man continued on his way, till the sun had spent its noonday heat, and a breeze announced the approach of eve sprung up from the unseen ocean which lay far distant to his right. It was then that a turn in the road brought before him one of those long, desolate, gloomy villages which are found in the interior of the Neapolitan dominions, and now he came upon a small chapel on one side of the road, with a gaudily painted image of the Virgin in the open shrine. Around this spot, which in the heart of Christian land retained the vestige of the old idolatry, gathered six or seven miserable wretches, whom the curse of the leper had cut off from mankind. They set up a shrill cry as they turned their ghastly visages toward the horsemen, and without stirring from the spot, stretched out their gaunt arms, and implored charity in the name of the merciful mother. Glyndon hastily threw them some small coins, and turning away his face, clapped spurs to his horse, and relaxed not his speed till he entered the village. On either side of the narrow and miry street, fierce and haggard forms some leaning against the ruined walls of blackened huts some seated at the threshold some lying at full length in the mud presented groups that at once invoked pity and aroused alarm pity for their squalor alarm for the ferocity imprinted on their savage aspects they gazed at him grim and sullen as he rode slowly up the rugged street sometimes whispering significantly to each other but without attempting to stop his way 
even the children hushed their babble and ragged urchins devouring him with sparkling eyes muttered to their mothers we shall feast well to-morrow it was indeed one of those hamlets in which law sets not its sombre step in which violence and murder house secure hamlets common then in the wilder parts of italy in which the peasant was but the gentler name for the robber glyndon's heart somewhat failed him as he looked around and the question he desired to ask died upon his lips at length from one of the dismal cabins emerged a form superior to the rest instead of the patched and ragged overall which made the only garment of the men he had hitherto seen the dress of this person was characterized by all the trappings of the national bravery upon his raven hair the glossy curls of which made a notable contrast to the matted elfin locks of the savages around was placed a cloth cap with a gold tassel that hung down to his shoulder his moustaches were trimmed with care and a silk kerchief of gay hues was twisted around a well-shaped but sinewy throat a short jacket of rough cloth was decorated with several rows of glit filigree buttons his nether garments fitted tight to his limbs were curiously braided while in a broad party-coloured sash were placed two silver-hilted pistols and the sheathed knife usually worn by italians of the lower order mounted in ivory elaborately carved a small carbine of some handsome workmanship was slung across his shoulder and completed his costume the man himself was of middle size athletic yet slender with straight and regular features sunburnt but not swarthy and an expression of countenance which though reckless and bold had in it frankness rather than ferocity and if defying was not altogether unprepossessing glyndon after eyeing this figure for some moments with great attention checked his rein and asked the way to the castle of the mountain the man lifted his cap as he heard the question and approaching glyndon laid his hand upon the neck of the horse and said in a low voice then you are the cavalier whom our patron the signor expected he bade me wait for you here and lead you to the castle and indeed signor it might have been unfortunate if i had neglected to obey the command the man then drawing a little aside called out to the bystanders in a loud voice ho ho my friends pay henceforth and forever all respect to this worshipful cavalier he is the expected guest of our blessed patron of the castle of the mountain long life to him may he like his host be safe by day and by night on the hill and in the waste against the dagger and the bullet in limb and life cursed be he who touches a hair of his head or a baiocho in his pouch now and forever we will protect and honor him for the law or against the law with the faith and to the death amen 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 responded in wild chorus a hundred voices and the scattered and straggling groups pressed up the street nearer and nearer to the horseman and that he may be known continued the englishman's strange protector to the eye and to the ear i place around him the white sash and give him the sacred watchword peace to the brave signor when you wear this sash the proudest in these parts will bear the head and bend the knee signor when you utter this watchword the bravest hearts will be bound to your bidding desire you safety or ask you revenge to gain a beauty or to lose a foe speak but the word and we are yours we are yours is it not so comrades and again the hoarse voices shouted amen amen now signor whispered the bravo 
if you have a few coins to spare scatter them amongst the crowd and let us be gone glyndon not displeased at the concluding sentence emptied his purse in the streets and while with mingled oaths blessings shrieks and yells men and women and children scrambled for the money the bravo taking the rein of the horse led it a few paces through the village at a brisk trot and then turning up a narrow lane to the left in a few minutes neither houses nor men were visible and the mountains closed their path on either side it was then that releasing the bridle and slackening his pace the guide turned his dark eyes on glyndon with an arched expression and said your excellency was not perhaps prepared for the hearty welcome we have given you why in truth i ought to have been prepared for it since the signor to whose house i am bound did not disguise from me the character of the neighborhood and your name my friend if i may so call you oh no ceremonies with me excellency in the village i am generally called maestro paolo i had a surname once though a very equivocal one and i have forgotten that since i retired from the world and it was from disgust and from poverty or from some ebullition of passion that entailed punishment that betook you yourself to the mountains why signor said the bravo with a gay laugh hermits of my class seldom love the confessional however i have no secrets while my step is in these defiles my whistle in my pouch and my carbine on my back with that the robber as if he loved permission to talk at his will hemmed thrice and began with much humour though as his tale proceeded the memories it aroused seemed to carry him further than he at first intended a reckless and light-hearted ease gave way to that fierce and varied play of countenance and passion of gesture which characterizes the emotions of his countrymen i was born at terracina a fair spot is it not my father was a learned monk of high birth my mother heaven rest her an innkeeper's pretty daughter of course there could be no marriage in the case and when i was born the monk gravely declared my appearance to be miraculous i was dedicated from my cradle to the altar and my head was universally declared to be orthodox shape for a cowl as i grew up the monk took great pains with my education and i learned latin and psalmody as soon as less miraculous infants learned crowing nor did the holy man's care stint itself to my interior accomplishments although vowed to poverty he always contrived that my mother should have her pockets full and between her pockets and mine there was soon established a candlestein communication accordingly at fourteen i wore my cap on one side stuck pistols in my belt and assumed the swagger of a cavalier and a gallant at that age my poor mother died and about the same period my father having written a history on the pontifical bowls in forty volumes and being as i said of high birth obtained a cardinal's hat from that time he thought fit to disown your humble servant he bound me over to an honest notary at naples and gave me two hundred crowns by way of provision well signor i saw enough of the law to convince me that i should never be a rogue enough to shine in the profession so instead of spoiling parchment i made love to the notary's daughter my master soon discovered our innocent amusement and turned me out of doors that was disagreeable but my nidetta loved me and i took care that i should not lie out in the streets with the lazzaroni little jade i think i see her now with her bare feet and her finger to her lips opening the door in the summer nights and bidding me to creep softly into the kitchen 
where praise be the saints a flask and a mache always awaited the hungry amoroso at last however ninetta grew cold it is the way of sex signor her father found her an excellent marriage in the person of a withered old pitcher dealer he took the spouse and very properly clapped the door in the face of the lover i was not disheartened excellency no not i women are plentiful while we are young so without a ducat in my pocket or a crust for my teeth i set out to seek my fortune on board a spanish merchantman that was duller work than i expected but luckily we were attacked by a pirate half the crew were butchered the rest captured i was one of the last always in luck you see senor monks sons have a knack that way the captain of the pirates took a fancy to me serve with us said he too happy said i behold me then a pirate oh jolly life how blessed the old notary for turning me out of doors what feasting what fighting what wooing what quarrelling sometimes we ran ashore and enjoyed ourselves like princes sometimes we lay in a calm for days together on the loveliest sea that man ever traversed and then if the breeze rose and a sail came in sight who so merry as we i passed three years in that charming profession and then signor i grew ambitious i cobbled against the captain i wanted his post one night we struck the blow the ship was like a log in the sea no land to be seen from the masthead the waves like glass and the moon at its full up we rose thirty of us and more up we rose with a shout we poured into the captain's cabin i at the head the brave boy had caught the alarm and there he stood at the doorway pistol in each hand and his one eye he only had one worse to meet than the pistols were yield cried i your life shall be safe take that said he and a whiz went the pistol but the saints took care of their own and the ball passed by my cheek and shot the boatswain behind me i closed with the captain and the pistol went off without mischief in the struggle such a fellow he was six feet four without his shoes over we went rolling on each other santa maria no time to get hold of one's knife meanwhile all the crew were up some for the captain some for me clashing and firing and swearing and groaning and now and then a heavy splash in the sea fine supper for the sharks that night at last old bilboa got uppermost out flashed his knife down it came but not in my heart no i gave my left arm as a shield and the blade went through to the hilt with blood spurting up like a rain from a whale's nostril with the weight of the blow the stout fellow came down so that his face touched mine with my right hand i caught him by the throat and turned him over like a lamb senor and faith it was soon all up with him the boatswain's brother a fat dutchman ran him through with a pike old fellow said i as he turned his terrible eye to me i bear you no malice but we must try to get on in the world you know the captain grinned and gave up the ghost i went upon deck what a sight twenty bold fellows stark and cold and the moon sparkling on the puddles of blood as calmly as if it were water well senor the victory was ours and the ship mine i ruled merrily for six months we then attacked a french ship twice our size what sport it was and we had not had a good fight so long we were like virgins at it we got the best of it and one ship and cargo they wanted to pistol the captain but that was against my laws so we engaged him for he scolded as loud as if we were married to him 
left him and the rest of his crew on board our own vessel, which was terribly battered. Clapping our black flag on the Frenchman's, and set off merrily, with a brisk wind in our favor. But luck deserted us on our forsaking our own dear ship. A storm came on, a plank struck, several of us escaped in a boat. We had lots of gold with us, but no water. For two days and two nights we suffered horribly. But at last we ran ashore near a French seaport. Our sorry plight moved compassion, and as we had money, we were not suspected. People only suspect the poor. Here we soon recovered our fatigues, rigged ourselves out gaily, and your humble servant was considered as noble a captain as ever walked the deck. But now, alas, my fate would have it that I should fall in love with a silk mercer's daughter. Ah, and how I loved her! The pretty Clara! Yes, I loved her so well that I was seized with the horror of my past life. I resolved to repent, to marry her, and settle down into an honest man. Accordingly, I summoned my messmates, told them my resolution, resigned my command, and persuaded them to depart. They were good fellows, engaged with a Dutchman, against whom I had heard afterwards they made a successful mutiny, but I never saw them more. I had two thousand crowns still left. With this sum I obtained the consent of the silk mercer, and it was agreed that I should become a partner in the firm. I need not say that no one suspected that I had been so great a man, and I passed for a Neapolitan goldsmith's son instead of a cardinal's. I was very happy then, signor, very. I could not have harmed a fly. Had I married Clara, I had been as gentle as a mercer ever handled a measure. The bravo paused a moment, and it was easy to see that he felt more than his words and tone betokened. Well, well, we must not look back at the past too earnestly. The sunlight upon it makes one's eyes water. The day was fixed for our wedding, it approached. The evening before the appointed day, Clara, her mother, her little sister, and myself were walking by the port. And as we looked on the sea, I was telling them old gossip tales of mermaids and sea serpents, when a red-faced bottle-nosed Frenchman clapped himself right before me, and placing his spectacles very deliberately astride his proboscis echoed out, Sacre mille tonneries! This is the damn pirate who boarded the Niobe. None of your jests, said I mildly. Ho, ho, said he. I can't be mistaken. Help there! And he gripped me by the collar. I replied, as you may suppose, by laying him in the kennel. But it would not do. The French captain had a French lieutenant at his back, whose memory was as good as his chief's. A crowd assembled, other sailors came up, the odds were against me. I slept that night in prison, and in a few weeks afterwards I was sent to the galleys. They spared my life because the old Frenchman politely averred that I had made my crew spare his. You may believe that the oar and the chain were not to my taste. I and two others escaped. They took to the road, and have, no doubt, been long since broken on the wheel. I, soft soul, could not commit another crime to gain my bread, for Clara was still at my heart with her sweet eyes, so limiting my rogueries to the theft of a beggar's rags, which I compensated by leaving him my galley attire instead. I begged my way to the town where I left Clara. It was a clear winter's day when I approached the outskirts of the town. I had no fear of detection, for my beard and hair were as good as a mask. Oh, mother of mercy! There came across my way a funeral procession. There, now you know it. I can tell you no more. She had died, perhaps of love, more likely of shame. 
Can you guess how I spent the night? I stole a pickaxe from a mason's shed, and all alone and unseed, under frosty heavens, I dug the fresh mould from the grave. I lifted the coffin, I wrenched the lid. I saw her again, again. Decay had not touched her. She was always pale in life. I could have sworn she lived. It was a blessed thing to see her once more, and all alone, too. But then at dawn, to give her back to the earth, to close the lid, to throw down the mould, to hear the pebbles rattle on the coffin, that was dreadful. Signor, I never knew before, and I don't wish to think now, how valuable a thing human life is. At sunrise I was again a wanderer. But now that Clara was gone, my scruples vanished, and again I was at war with my betters. I contrived at last, at O, to get taken on board a vessel to Leghorn, working out my passage. From Leghorn I went to Rome, and stationed myself at the door of the Cardinal's palace. Out he came, his gilded coach at the gate. "'Oh, father,' said I, "'don't you know me?' "'Who are you?' "'Your son,' said I, in a whisper. The Cardinal drew back, looked at me earnestly, and mused a moment. "'All men are my sons,' quoth he then, very mildly. "'There is gold for thee. To whom who begs once, alms are due. To him who begs twice, jails are open. Take the hint, and molest me no more. Heaven bless thee.' With that he got into his coach and drove off to the Vatican. His purse which he had left behind was well supplied. I was grateful and contented, and took my way to Terracina. I had not long passed the marshes, when I saw two horsemen approach at a canter. "'You look poor, friend,' said one of them, halting. "'Yet you are strong. Poor men, and strong, are both serviceable and dangerous, Signor Cavalier. Well said. Follow us.' I obeyed, and became a bandit. I rose by degrees, and I have always been mild in my calling, and have taken purses without cutting throats. I bear an excellent character, and can eat my macaroni at Naples without any danger to my life and limb. For the last two years I have settled in these parts where I hold sway, and where I have purchased land. I am called a farmer, signor, and I myself now only rob for amusement, and to keep my hand in. I trust I have satisfied your curiosity. We are within a hundred yards of the castle. And how? asked the Englishman whose interest had been much excited by his companion's narrative. And how came you acquainted with my host? And by what means has he so well conciliated the good will of yourself and friends? Maestro Paolo turned his black eyes very gravely towards his questioner. Why, signor, said he, you must surely know more of the foreign cavalier with the hard name than I do. All I can say is that about a fortnight ago, I chanced to be standing by a booth at the Toledo at Naples, when a sober-looking gentleman touched my arm, and said, Maestro Paolo, I want to make your acquaintance. Do me the favor to come to yonder tavern, and drink a flask of lacrima. Willingly, said I. So we entered the tavern, and when we were seated, my new acquaintance thus accosted me. The Count de O has offered to let me hire his castle near B. You know the spot? extremely well no one has inhabited it for a century at least it is half in ruin signor a queer place to hire i hope the rent is not heavy maestro paolo said he i am a philosopher and don't care for luxuries i want a quiet retreat for some scientific experiments the castle will suit me very well provided you will accept me as a neighbor and place me and my friends under your special protection 
I am rich, but I shall take nothing to the castle worth robbing. I will pay one rent to the Count, and another to you. With that we soon came to terms, and as the strange signor doubled the sum I myself proposed, he is in high favour with all his neighbours. We would guard the whole castle against any army. And now, signor, that I have been thus frank, be frank with me. Who is this singular cavalier? Who? He himself told you. A philosopher. Hmm. Searching for the philosopher's stone, eh? A bit of a magician. Afraid of the priests? Precisely. You have hit it. I thought so. And you are his pupil? I am. I wish you well through it, said the robber, seriously, and crossing himself with much devotion. I am not much better than other people, but one's soul is one's soul. I do not mind a little honest robbery, or knocking a man on the head if need be, but to make a bargain with the devil. Ah, take care, young gentleman, take care. You need not fear, said Glyndon, smiling. My preceptor is too wise, and too good for such a compact. But here we are, I suppose, a noble ruin, a glorious prospect. Glyndon paused delightedly and surveyed the scene before and below with the eye of a painter. Insensibly, while listening to the bandit, he had wound up a considerable ascent, and now he was up on a broad ledge of rock covered with mosses and dwarf shrubs. Between this eminence and another of equal height, upon which the castle was built, there was a deep but narrow fissure, overgrown with the most profuse foliage, so that the eye could not penetrate many yards below the rugged surface of the abyss but the profoundness might be well conjectured by the hoarse, low, monotonous roar of waters unseen that rolled below, and the subsequent course of which was visible at a distance in a perturbed and rapid stream that intersected the waste and desolate valleys. To the left the prospect seemed almost boundless, the extreme clearness of the purple air serving to render distinct the features of a range of country that a conqueror of old might have deemed in itself a kingdom lonely and desolate as the road which glinton had passed that day had appeared the landscape now seemed studded with castles spires and villages afar off naples gleamed whitely in the last rays of the sun and the rose tints of the horizon melted into the azure of her glorious bay yet more remote and in another part of the prospect might be caught dim and shadowy and backed by the darkest foliage the ruined pillars of the ancient Posidonia there in the midst of his blackened and sterile realms rose the dismal mound of fire while on the other hand winding through the variegated plains to which distance lent all its magic glinted many and many a stream by which etruscan and sybarite roman and sassaran and norman had at intervals of ages pitched the invading tent all the visions of the past the stormy and dazzling histories of the southern italy rushed over the artist's mind as he gazed below and then, slowly turning to look behind, he saw the grey and mouldering malls of the castle in which he sought the secrets that were to give to hope in the future a mightier empire than memory owns in the past. It was one of those baronial fortresses with which Italy was studded in the earlier Middle Ages, having but little of the Gothic grace or grandeur which belongs to the ecclesiastical architecture of the same time, but rude, vast, and menacing even in decay. A wooden bridge was thrown across the chasm, wide enough to admit two horsemen abreast, and the planks trembled and gave back a hollow sound as Glyndon urged his jaded steed across. A road, which had once been broad and paved with rough flags, 
but which now was half obliterated by long grass and rank weeds conducted to the outer court of the castle hard by the gates were open and half the building in this part was dismantled the ruins partially hid by ivy that was the growth of centuries but on entering the interior court glyndon was not sorry to notice that there was less appearance of neglect and decay some wild roses gave a smile to the gray walls and in the centre there was a fountain in which the waters trickled coolly and with pleasing murmur from the jaws of a gigantic triton here he was met by Mejnour with a smile welcome my friend and pupil said he he who seeks for truth can find in these solitudes an immortal academy end of chapter fifteen recording by kirk ziegler ogden utah voiceover-solutions.com